Dirty Paper Project, Dirty Paper Podcast. All right, Dirty Paper Podcasters. Now, if this is your first episode and this is the first time you're checking in with us, I would like to ask that you go back and begin with episode one, part one, to ensure that you're getting everything and you're getting all the content. I want to welcome you to the Dirty Paper Project and the Dirty Paper Podcast. And this is part three of episode two. And just to recap a bit, we began discussing the EPR or the evaluation from 2005 to 2006 and my statement leading up to the beginning of the reprisal. And if you remember, our last question was how much does the commander know? And that leads us to the ERAB, which we discussed in part one, which is the Evaluation Reports Appeals Board. And my submission to them was requesting to have the EPR from 2005 through 2006 removed or corrected. Again, not knowing at the time, evidentiary standard for any of these grievance agencies, such as the ERAB or the Air Force Board of Military Corrections, the decision or subject to review is by the APA, the Administrative Procedure Act. And basically what the APA also assumes is that any action that the commander or the ERAB makes, or the Air Force Board of Military Corrections makes, is the right action. And remember this, proof of action or the evidentiary standard must meet the standard of abuse or discretion, or in this case, arbitrary and capricious. And we're going to underline that because that's going to be our goal for the rest of this project. And see, the burden of proving or demonstrating that there was an error, you have to prove that by presenting clear and convincing evidence. But how? How do we do that? So how are we going to prove that the commander was acting arbitrary and capricious? Where's the evidence? How do you prove that when these people are controlling the facts and the information, the data? On top of that, you have an administrative panel, the Air Force's Board of Military Corrections, or the Enlisted Reports of Appeals Board, who has no investigative body controlling the information and evidence. And that's not to mention the people we trust to have our backs such as the commander and the officer in charge of the flight, but that's never the case now, is it? So stepping forward a bit, where I filed an evaluation correction through the ERAB, and after several months of hoping they would also see that the performance evaluation from 2005 through 2006 was unjust, they denied it as well. At the time, I really had a high expectation of them seeing the evaluation as unjust because I went out and did everything I assumed was the right thing to do by getting statements, number one, from the people who are high in my rating chain to prove this was wrong. But again, I didn't understand the evidentiary standard. I needed to prove that the commander was acting arbitrary and in a capricious manner. Now, how the hell do I prove that without a full-blown investigation? I mean, you go out and you get these statements, but still, you have to prove arbitrary and capricious. So looking at the submission to the ERAB, I failed in my presentation of the facts and pointing out or either saying that this was a case of reprisal. And again, the timing of the events and my knowledge of such incidents, coupled with the education of such laws, especially the burden of proof or proving arbitrary and capricious, needless to say, was way over my head. And, and, and by the way, this is all the level of scrutiny needed in an IG complaint. And need I mention, I wasn't a lawyer or someone who worked in the complaints department. In addition to that, anytime someone brought up 
seeking help through the inspector general. It was like going to talk to God or something. I mean, really. And my question is, what if I had no evidence? What if? And I believe I had met the quota of proving that someone was acting arbitrary or capricious, or there was an abuse of discretion or power. In other words, not in accordance with the law or AFI or Air Force instruction. And again, my question to the Air Force Board of Military Corrections and to the Evaluation Reports Review Board, what is the standard of proving or verifying what is wrong and what is right? And I say this because of my statement earlier, referring to the discretion of the IG and the evidentiary burden. And to further this point, we discussed the two feedbacks and the evaluation prior the performance evaluation of 2005 through 2006. But let's just take a closer look at the evaluation. And for you listening out there, just remember, I'm no expert, but being enlisted and having to deal with fucked up shit like this, you have to become the expert in all things that matter or are of concern to you. Because they will try to make it look like you're the crazy one and knowing all well the people and resources they have to make it all stick or look official unless you can speak their language. So talking about the EPR from 2005 through 2006, let's just go down the list of all things jacked up in this evaluation. And remember, the key word in this discussion is data, proof of fact, not innuendo, presumptions, hyperbole, or exaggerations of the truth. Because remember, the truth can be construed to fit any scenario as well. So we want facts. But before I get to that, Let's just take a few seconds to say, if this isn't for you, then pass it on. I mean, not only do you have to fight the enemy on the other side, you got to fight the enemy within your own camp. And as a victim, I should not have to fight so hard to be heard. I should not have to go to the Board of Military Corrections 15 times or to a circuit court to have my records corrected for being wrongfully accused. So this is for you, for me, for us. And now back to our regularly scheduled broadcast. So the question is, where does the EPR fit into all of this? And my contention is, is that the EPR was rewritten and was wrong. That's what I say. But how do we prove it? So the first question we must ask is, what was the intent, purpose, and the action? So if we relate this to behavior as that relates to maintaining effective good order and discipline, then what was the expected result? And if we ask in that question, we need to ask, where was it discussed in the feedback sessions, letters of counseling, or reprimands, or behavior, or at the very least, my performance? So let's begin to challenge these bullets. Now, where it describes the performance of the application services manager, the first challenge is, is that application services did not exist in the Air Force medical enterprise. There were no governing instructions, no guidance, no continuity in addition to no performance factors or job descriptions to describe what was to be evaluated or performed, how did they come up with a number? How did they come up with factors of performance? Now remember, application services was first introduced in March of 2006 in a feedback session. Therefore, at the time, there were no governing instructions or continuity. So with no performance factors, someone out there, please tell me how the hell they were able to come up with performance factors. Again, there were no performance factors to describe the job or describe what was to be evaluated or performed. And this is not to mention the idea of the job being scrapped. But I think a better question associated with this 
is where in the hell did this dude get the numbers from? How did he make this bullet? Where's the numbers for this bullet? Where does that come from if the job didn't exist? Now you see folks, that in itself questions the entire EPR. If there's no performance factors, there's no continuity, and there's no evaluation or job description to say what needs to be evaluated, then where the hell did he get this number from? Now, I know we fluff and BS with some of the numbers, but there's a job associated with that. You know, for example, if someone sits at the desk and they check in four or five people in a day, we can say that he had contact with five people, but how many people did he talk to on the phone? Therefore, we can make that number a little larger because he probably did talk to people or she talked to people on the phone. So we can make that number a little larger than five, but there's a performance associated with that number. You get my meaning? I'm pretty sure you do. So if there's no job, there's no performance, and there's nothing to be evaluated, how did this person get this number? And that's the question. Now see, that in itself tells you what we're getting ready to deal with. Moving on, let's take a look at bullet 13. This bullet says, skilled CSA, display competence and aptitude in accomplishing most assigned tasks, promote with peers. For anyone listening out there, civilian, military, be it otherwise, you and I both know that this is a statement of subpar performance. And in order to justify this bullet, he has to describe these duties in the feedback. But if he hadn't described any duties for CSA, which he didn't, and the duty title of my feedback was non-commissioned officer in charge of the systems flight. So what is he describing here as skill CSA and me displaying competence and the aptitude in accomplishing most tasks? What the fuck was he talking about? And that's my point. See, the usage of the term client services administrator, see that title and at the time was a part of a certification process. And, and it was a stretch because it connected the performance and general duties of all people who worked in the information systems flight and to suggest that all CSAs are non-commissioned officers. And if this statement is true, then how is it applied? Because not all CSAs were non-commissioned officers. You get my point? Secondly, as it's related to AFI 3626.18, the enlisted force structure, all non-commissioned officers should have a duty title commensurate with their rank and skill. By omitting non-commissioned officer in charge of and adding CSA, it appears he's trying to lower the duty performance. Why would he do that? Now, moving down to bullet 17, as I connect the two, the author described author of this EPR describes a continuity binder that you and I both know was never completed because the program was scrapped. And what he's referring to in this continuity binder was the duty for application services. And if you remember, the program was scrapped and it was scrapped by the commander as well as higher headquarters Air Force. So how was the officer in charge of the flight able to push this bullet past the eyes of those who know there was no performances associated with the duty title non-commissioned officer in charge of application services. Hold that question and let's put a pin in that because we're going to move back to bullet 14 where he describes the client service administrator. So which is it going to be client service administrator or NCOIC of application services? Now, the rule that governs this is held in Air Force Instruction 3626.18, Enlisted Air Force Structure, Chapter 4, Section 4.1, Subsection 4. 
where it states, an NCO must maintain the highest level of readiness to meet the mission and its requirements. And in section 4.1.4.1, they also must be technically ready to accomplish the mission, attain and maintain a skill level commensurate with their rank and a degree of proficiency in their duties as outlined in their CFETP. And remember, we discussed the CFETP earlier, which is the Career Functional Education Training Plan. And on a side note, at the time of this EPR, I was the only non-commissioned officer in the flight who had his Network Plus, Security Plus, and at the time, I also had several Microsoft Administrator certifications, which I paid for out of my own pocket. And to put this all into context, and now moving back to the EPR and putting this all into context, the duty title. The duty title says Non-Commissioned Officer Systems Flight, but I'm being evaluated as a CSA, which according to the rule, in Section 4, Air Force Instruction 2618, the enlisted Air Force structure, is this job commensurate with the rank or is the title commensurate with the rank of a staff sergeant? When in fact, the CSA duty title is commensurate with the rank or skill of an airman basic to a senior airman and definitely not an NCO and definitely not the non-commissioned officer in charge of the systems flight, which indicates there was something else going on, but it also notes that there's something suspicious going on here. And again, this just could be my view of it. This could be my interpretation of the facts, but there's something suspicious going on. But it also sends a message, and it sounds like an attempt at a demotion on paper or a firing maybe. But the question is why? Why am I being fired or demoted? Or in this case, being evaluated as a CSA versus the non-commissioned officer in charge of the flight. The job description for the non-commissioned officer in charge of the information system flight on the 2005 through 2006 differs greatly from the job description on the EPR of the non-commissioned officer in charge of the information systems flight. Not only that, the factors of performance are missing. Budgeting directors, logistics, or even leadership is visibly missing. In addition to the way the EPR is written, officer in charge of the flight has also fabricated a position on evaluation for something that does not exist, and that's in the entirety of the Air Force Medical Enterprise. The application services manager did not exist. Therefore, how can we go around measuring performance for made-up jobs with no description of its functional capabilities or factors of performance? And what this does is it makes it an unfair representation. And secondly, according to rules that govern this, which are contained in Air Force Instruction 36-2406, Officer Enlisted Evaluation System, in Section 2.2.2.6, the rater must maintain copies of the midterm feedback notice and the feedback sheet to be routed with the evaluation. In addition to the initial feedback session, as this may be needed for any future appeals, also, in accordance with this Air Force instruction, in Section 2.2.27, the feedback is a communication tool and is not to be used to discover or document behavior, which may result in administrative or judicial action. Now, as a note from this section, behavior representing a significant deviation from expected standards needs to be recorded in other administrative forms, 
i.e. letters of reprimand, letters of counseling, or letters of admonishment, or memorandums of record. And last but not least, it needs to be filed in the member's personal information file. And the member must have notice of this. So the next part of this goes into a conversation between myself, the first sergeant, the squadron superintendent, and the career functional manager for my career field. In a meeting with them after my EPR was being recirculated, they all supported the decision of the officer in charge and the squadron commander providing the documentation he stated he had in a drawer. I'll say that again. The officer in charge of the flight stated he had evidence in his drawer justifying recirculating the EPR after it had closed out and at the same time justifying the four performance or the markdowns. And again, I want to say this, four EPR is not a bad EPR if it's justified. And in this case, it wasn't. So something very important happened in this meeting. After the meeting, along with the career functional manager, the first sergeant and the squadron superintendent did a review of my personal information file. At this time, there were no LORs, no LOAs, and no letters of counseling or memorandums of record to support the decisions to produce such ratings. In light of this, they advised me to review and sign my personal information file on that day and the day after reviewing the personal information file to bar the officer in charge of the flight and the squadron commander from adding erroneous paperwork after the fact. Because remember, my EPR had already closed out. Now, if you look at the dates where I signed in my personal information file, the dates correlate with this discussion. On top of that, the squadron superintendent wrote on the routing sheet of the recirculated EPR stating that he could not support the rating and deemed the behavior of the officer in charge of the flight unbecoming and suspiciously detrimental to the good conduct, good order, and discipline as a whole. For me, I assume that this is where it died, and so I thought it was over. But in November of 2006, I discovered that this EPR had become a matter of record. Again, let me be clear, a full EPR is not a bad EPR, but the contents of the EPR are a clear case of reprisal. Therefore, I'm challenging the validity of the content written in EPR from 2005 through 2006, and that's based on the integrity and the reputation of the authors. So in closing, we believe the evaluation was purposely misconstrued with false information and a clear omission of the facts designed to malign my reputation and character as a means of damaging my integrity, which coincidentally was recirculated after the statement I made during reports of survey 06075, which was a protected statement made to investigators. So as we close out part three of episode two, we discussed the events leading up to the EPR, the feedback and the statement, the midterm feedbacks and the purposeful deceit written into the EPR from 2005 through 2006. But for what purpose? What was the intent for this? So tune in to episode three, part one, where we discuss the mediation and the attempt to squash this with a visit to the Equal Opportunity Office. That said, I want to thank you for tuning in. I want to thank you for subscribing and I want to thank you for your support. Until then, be safe and take care of yourself. Dirty Paper Project, Dirty Paper Podcast.